you have your Bibles with us, you can please open and read, read along with me through this morning's scripture reading. It'll be from the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 41, starting with verse 54, and going to chapter 42, verse 8. Genesis 41, starting with verse 54. And I will be reading from the New King James Version. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph has said. The famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all, land, in all lands. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy, buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brothers, brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Let some calamity befall him. And the son of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brother came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. man Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers sold him into slavery into Egypt. He spent 13 years as a slave before Pharaoh elevated him to second in the kingdom only to the king himself over all of Egypt. And we recall the reason for his elevation, don't we? We remember the dream that the, the Pharaoh had. He didn't completely understand it. He dreamed about cows and ears of grain and and so Joseph came to him and he interpreted those dreams by the power of God and he said, well, what's going to happen is we're going to have seven years of plenty only to be followed by seven years of dearth. And then it was Joseph who told the king, he encouraged him, find a wise man over whom you can place the kingdom and you can determine what you need to do and you can gather for seven years and that way when the seven bad years come, You'll have someone that, can, uh, that will be able to take care of the country. And of course, Pharaoh chose a wise man in order uh, to, to take care of that, and he, it was Joseph. So he chose Joseph to take care of the land. And for seven years, he collected all the grain throughout the land, and then when the seven years of dearth came, Joseph was the man who began to sell the grain, not only to those in Egypt, but to all of the world. So, when we get to the point of time in our text of which it describes, it would have been seven years past the time that Joseph, at 30 years old, was elevated to authority in Egypt. So he would have been 37 years old at least when his brothers came to him and saw him for the first time for more than, in more than two decades. 
And so they came to him, and they stood face to face. There had been a whole lot of things that happened in Joseph's life up to that point. He had been faced with a lot of adversity. He had overcome and conquered a lot of adversity. And the last time that Joseph was face to face with his brothers, he was the one in need. But this time Joseph was not needing to be rescued. In fact, his brothers needed to be rescued. God used that event to help save the lineage through which Christ would come. When he saw his brothers, after more than these two decades, they did not recognize him, but he for sure recognized them. After all, the appearance of the Egyptians compared to the appearance of the Hebrews was vastly different. The Egyptians wore long robes. The Hebrews wore short robes. The Egyptians wore beards, or the the Hebrews wore beards, and the Egyptians not only shaved their face, but they shaved their head as well. And so they didn't recognize this young man, Joseph, at the age of at least 37, but he certainly saw them, and he recognized them. And I imagine he would have never forgotten them. But God used this uh, event in the history of the world, this, this terrible famine that happened for a period of seven years to save this lineage through which the Lord would come. And along the way, He helped to resurrect the dead consciences of these nine men. And that's the title of the sermon this morning, Resurrecting a Dead Conscience. Now the purpose this morning is for us to better understand what the conscience is, what it does, and how it can be protected. The conscience is a very valuable thing that each of us have, and it is very delicate. And we need to watch over our consciences. It doesn't take much for a conscience to become hardened. First, we need to understand what it is. What is exactly the conscience? Well, let's look at the dictionary term, conscience. It defines it as the sense or consciousness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character together with a feeling of obligation to do right or be good. Now that's a pretty good definition of the word conscience, isn't it? Now the word conscience is found 31 times in the New Testament. And the Greek word from which it comes means the soul as distinguished between what is morally good and bad prompting to do the former and shun the latter, commending one, condemning the other. So, the conscience is part of our eternal uh, essence, the spirit of man, the conscience, that which lives eternally. And within us, we have this sense of ought. Now, in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, J.F. MacArthur Jr. wrote this, and I think that he made a wonderful statement. He said, the conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right and restrains us from what we believe is wrong. The conscience is not to be equated with the voice of God. It is a human faculty that judges our actions and thoughts by the light of the highest standard we perceive. When we violate our conscience, it condemns us, triggering feelings of shame, anguish, regret, consternation, anxiety, disgrace, and even fear. When we follow our conscience, it commends bringing joy, serenity, self-respect, well-being, and gladness. 
I think that is a wise statement, and it is a true statement. The conscience is not the voice of God. The conscience is something that we as individuals have trained, and we use it to lift us up to what the highest moral standard we believe is correct. One might rightly ask then, when we look at the idea of a conscience and we can say no matter what it may appear or what we think, everyone has a conscience. They say, well, what about the Muslim who is radicalized and kills innocent life all in the name of their God? What about the radicalized anyone who who bursts into a church building and and begins to massacre wholesale those who are trying to worship God in the way they see fit. How can that person have a conscience? Well, I think the answer lies in the fact that the conscience is not infallible. It's not infallible. It is not the source of revelation about what is right and what is wrong. Its purpose is not to teach one moral or ethical ideas. Instead, it is to hold us accountable to the highest standard of right and wrong by which, to which one has committed himself. So, the radical Muslim, his standard of what is right and wrong is not what our standard is. The radicalized person who goes in and begins to murder people who are worshiping God Their standard is not what our standard is. So the conscience cannot be a guide all the time. At least not until it has been trained properly. So the truth is every conscience must receive instruction. Every conscience must be trained and taught. And the only time it will ever become worthy of being guided or being a guide to us is if it has been trained according to biblical principles that God has set forth. But we do know this. People are born with a sense of ought. I think if we invited a room full of atheists to come join us, I think for the most part, unless we have someone that is out of the mainstream, they would recognize that stealing and cheating Lying and murder is wrong. Now, we're born with that sense of ought, and we have those societal standards because society has embraced those principles and it has been handed down generation after generation after generation, but we must understand from where those uh, principles originated. They originated with God. And so we do have this sense of ought. Now, As we look at the text before us, I want us to learn uh, some things about the conscience. I want us to understand just how important it is to train it properly. How important it is to protect the conscience. Joseph's brothers had long since silenced their conscience, hadn't they? They had, in some sense of the of the word, had pushed him into the background, but through their reintroduction to this young man, They began to remember some things. Some things were brought to their remembrance and they began to have their conscience awakened. I want us to begin this morning when we understand and we talk about a conscience, a dead conscience being resurrected. 
I want us to begin with exactly how's a conscience seared. How's it seared? That's our first point. Hatred will sear one will sear one's conscience, won't it? We go back and we look at the history of Joseph, and we recall early on in life how he was kidnapped by his brethren. They sold him as a slave. They killed an animal. They dipped his coat in it. They took it to their father, and they allowed him to believe that a wild animal had killed his favored son. And you know what happened? Genesis 33, 31 through 33, he fell for that lie. Now, did they say, oh, look what we found. Some kind of a wild animal, a lion or a bear or something uh, that, uh, similar to the things that David fought as a shepherd killed your son. No, they didn't tell him. They didn't technically speak that lie, did they? But they still lied because they allowed him to believe that's what happened when all along they had sold this young man into slavery. And they would live with the grief they saw on their father's face for more than 20 years. Notice how they allowed their conscience to be seared throughout all of this. As they sold their brother, they watched those captives carry him away. Surely, somewhere within them, they saw that and they regretted what was happening. Surely they had some feeling toward that young man who was only 17 years old. A young man who, in their opinion, was a tattletale and... He may be a little bit full of himself. Maybe he enjoyed the fact that his father loved him best. But at any rate, surely, having spent his whole life with him, they felt some kind of remorse as they watched him being carried away. When they lied to their father and they saw that grief and stress come across his face, and surely they felt something some kind of guilt toward their father. That same guilt that they had to live with for more than 20 years, surely something inside of them said, this is not right. Did they not feel sorry in some way? However, as time passed, the the feelings of their conscience beginning to uh, bring to their attention the things that they had done which were not correct began to fade over time. I'm sure over time they thought less and less and less about Joseph and more about the things at hand. And eventually they may have even began to believe their own lie. Well, whatever happened to Joseph? Well, he was killed in the wilderness by some wild animal. They told it over and over, no doubt. People within the the area where they lived would have certainly recognized Joseph was not numbered among uh, Jacob's children any longer. And they would have wanted to know what happened to Joseph. And so after a time, they seared their conscience. They came to a place where their conscience stopped speaking to them about what they had done in their lives. I read about a family who had a dog on one occasion, and the dog kept getting out of the fence and, and uh, climbing over the fence. So they decided they would put in the ground an invisible fence. Now, I've tried that myself. It doesn't work too good, or at least it didn't for me. But the idea is you put a collar on the dog, and it is a shock collar. When they get close to the, to the fence where, where uh, they know that the boundary is, it begins to beep, 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 
beep. And the closer they get, the louder and the closer together the beeps are. And eventually when they cross that boundary, they get a good shock. And, and that is supposed to keep them from uh, leaving the boundary. Well, this particular dog, and I don't think this is exclusive to this dog because I saw it myself with our animals. This particular dog I read about would back up as far as he could away from that boundary. He would bare his teeth and he would begin to run at that invisible fence. And before he got to it, he would begin to howl and he would run through that fence. But he finally realized that he could run far enough to where the pain stopped. So he paid no attention to that beeping. That's kind of a good illustration, isn't it, about our conscience. Within us, we have a conscience that tells us when something is right or wrong that we perceive to be right or wrong. Now, if it is a well-trained conscience, it tells us, well, this is right or this is wrong. But over time, we begin to realize we can get far enough away from that conscience that we don't feel the pain of, the shame or the stress or the guilt any longer. And that's what happened, I believe, to these brothers. Hatred is only one way, though, a conscience can be seared. It can also be seared when one does not heed his trained conscience. Hatred can lead you to to searing one's conscience and then, of course, not heeding what it tells you to do. After a while, you just stop listening. And it stops talking to you, doesn't it? Of course, that's an illustration of the conscience. It's not really talking to us. It's our minds that has been trained to tell us what is right or wrong. In 1984, an Avianca Airlines jet flying over Spain crashed into a mountain, instantly killing all people who were on board. Well, after the uh, investigators uh, began to look through the... uh, the wreckage, they found what is known as the black box, the recording that is inside every airplane. And they were astonished at what they heard. They listened to the recording, and just minutes prior to this crash, the plane's collision system came on. It began to speak. It began to give a warning to the pilot, pull up, pull up, pull up. It recognized something was in the flight path. Well, it was a computerized voice of a female speaking English. Pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. Seconds before that plane crashed, they heard the pilot say, Shut up, gringo, and turned off the system, and they crashed into the mountain. What good is something if you don't heed the warning? What good is... The fact that Christ died for all of us if we do not heed what He said. What good does it do the world that He walked to the cross after having been beaten nearly to death, being hung on the cross, looking down at those people mocking Him, asking God, forgive them they know not what they do, not forgive them in their sin, but forgive them when they come to the realization of what they've done. What good is any of that if we do not heed the voice? I think that's, a, that's an illustration about how one's conscience is seared. We just stop listening to it. After a while, and I believe this is what happened to Joseph's brethren, they simply began to ignore it. The trained conscience instructs us to pull up, pull up, get your life in order, 
And when we do not heed it, eventually it stops being heard, and it's certainly not heeded. I want us to look at this word sear for a moment. A conscience can be seared. That's what happened in Rome. If you'll read with me Romans 1 verse 28. Paul gave those people over to their lustful, illegal desires. And Paul said, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And that coincides perfectly with his warning Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 beginning with verse 1. He said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. That's, that's a figurative statement. What does it mean to sear something? It simply means to cauterize. Cauterize. That's where we get our word cauterize. Doctors will often cauterize a blood vessel to sear it closed to keep it from bleeding, and what that does is it creates a scar. A person who has been cauterized or branded, often used as to be branded, and we do that to animals, or we used to do that to animals. I think maybe they stick a tag in their ear now. But it causes a scar. Nerve endings do not are not present in that scar. You, didn't, you cannot feel anything. I have some scars on my body. When you rub a finger over it, you can't feel it. Because there are no nerve endings. It has been seared. There's no feeling. The conscience is the same way. We can sear our conscience and then we have no feeling of what God would have us to do. We need to take care of our conscience. Once a person allows his conscience to be seared, it is extremely difficult to reverse the damage. We need to be conscious of that. However, to sear a seared conscience can be stirred up. That's our second point. It can be stirred back to life. I think Joseph's brothers are a good example of that. When we look at the lives of Joseph's brothers, and we're reading that account of history, we look at them and we think, how awful must they have been? How could you do that to your own family member? They're kind of the worst of the worst. You know, we think of David doing things in his life, but not to his own family, right? Isn't there a difference? Well, maybe not. But we do look at that and we say, how in the world could they do that? There's no return from that, but there is. There can be. A conscience can be stirred. God can use problems in this life to stir up a conscience. He's done it in the past. I think through providence it may happen today. Those men who had so mistreated their own brother were brought back because their conscience was stirred up. I think it was very important for Joseph to remain faithful while he was in Egypt. If Joseph had not remained faithful, he would have never been elevated to that position of power. Then when the famine came, Jacob would have had nowhere to take his family and then they would have perished. And then what happens to the lineage of Christ? It's ended before it ever got started. But Joseph was faithful. But I think it is just as important that the need for the brothers to repent and recognize what they did. And for that to happen, their conscience had to be stirred. The problem used to resurrect the dead conscience of 
Israel's children was a worldwide famine. We read about it in Genesis 41, 56 through 57. Without that famine, there would have been no need to go to Egypt, would there? There wouldn't have been a need to go down there. But, once they get to where salvation is by going into Egypt, they return with grain. But Joseph tells him, don't come back unless you bring your brother. To prove their story, Joseph demanded that they bring their brother back. Remember, he began to talk uh, kind of rough to them, wanted to know where they're from, what they're doing. They came into, you came in to spy out the country. No, we came for grain. We have a father and a, and a brother back in Canaan. Okay, well, to prove that you're telling the truth, bring him to me or don't come back. Well, they didn't want to do that. So we see Joseph initiating a plan to cause these men to remember some things in their past. That's how we begin to stir up our conscience, right? We begin to remember some problems through which we went, maybe some, some bad decisions that we made. When he demanded the presence of Benjamin, they began to recall what they did to their brother. Now, they didn't recognize Joseph, but they did recall what they did. Genesis 42, 21 they remembered how that young man begged them in anguish. That's all it says. But can you imagine that young boy pleading with those brothers, please don't sell me into slavery. Please don't send me away from my father's house. Please don't do this. Completely ignoring it. They remembered how Reuben tried to convince them in the next verse, don't sin against the child. A child. Don't sin against the child. Don't do this. They began to recall these problems and the things and it began to afflict them. For one's conscience to be stirred up, we need to recall the things that we've done and we need to get to the point in this life where we can face those problems and we can own those problems and we can ask God to forgive us and those who we've affected. We need to realize we're wrong. Paul spoke to that. When he said, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The famine drove those men to Egypt, and without it they may never have ever thought of Joseph again. But God doesn't always just use problems. He can use people as well, can He? He can use people to stir up a conscience. I think it is the responsibility of brethren to do that for each other. Stir up our conscience. Let's not allow our consciences to be seared. Let's make sure that our conscience stays soft and supple where we can look at ourselves and we can say, that's not right. Let's train our conscience to do the right things. Though Joseph was wrong, he was wrong, there's no doubt about it. But you know he was still tasked with saving his brethren. Those same people who wronged him, who stole his life away from him, took him from his father's house, sold him into slavery. He endured. And we, and we only have a snapshot of the things that Joseph endured. He was in prison at least on two occasions. He was uh, uh, tempted by Potiphar's wife. He didn't give in to that. He was forgotten in prison. But he was still tasked with saving his brothers. Those same people who wronged him. Paul warned the Corinthians to do what was right concerning their brethren. 
who, their brother who was caught in adultery, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, didn't he? It was their responsibility. Don't allow that man to have his conscience seared to the point he doesn't want to repent. That's what we read about in Romans 1. They had gone so far into sin that they wouldn't allow their conscience to be stirred up. He warned the Galatians to help carry the burdens of the weaker brethren. Uh, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. That's an extremely difficult task, isn't it? Because some people don't want to be stirred up. Some people don't want their conscience to be stirred. They like where they're at. They don't want to change anything. Somehow they've deluded themselves into thinking things are good with them and God. That's not so, is it? The writer of Hebrews talked about in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 23, and we zero in on 25 all the time, not forsaking the assembling of the saints, as is the manner of some, and rightly so. But what do we do? Why? Why shouldn't we do that? Well, 23 and 24 tells us so we can stir each other up unto, unto good works, right? To love and good works. So we need to stir each other's conscience. Make sure we stay soft and supple. A conscience can be seared. It can be stirred. But most importantly, it can be saved. As the account continued, the brothers had reached a place in their lives and in their conscience where it was resurrected. They began to recall some things. They began to understand in a very personal way, how they were wrong and what they had did. They were certain that their trouble came upon them because of the way they treated their brother. And there may be something to that. But they confessed that to each other, didn't they? And they confessed it before God. And that's what they had to do. They needed to turn toward heaven, didn't they? Get away from the sin in this life. Get away from those things that cause us to have a seared conscience. People who have an affinity towards certain things need to stay away from that, right? The alcoholic must stay away from, from alcohol. The drug uh, abuser must stay away from drugs. The person who is prone to bad language doesn't need to be hanging around with people who are prone to bad language. If you live any kind of a lifestyle, don't be with those people who live that and embrace that lifestyle. You've got to get away from that. You've got to turn away from that. Or else the conscience will be seared and then all of a sudden it just becomes a lifestyle. It just becomes normal, doesn't it? That's what Joseph's brothers had allowed to happen to them. Life just became normal. It just didn't have Joseph in it any longer. And that wasn't such a big deal to them at the time. A seared conscience will keep one from heaven. When sin comes into our lives, we must confess that sin. Turn toward God, 1 John 1, 9. When we do that, we'll look for forgiveness and we'll look for reconciliation that's what these boys were doing these these men they were confessing that sin to each other they were recognizing amongst the group look we did wrong we did wrong before we can be right with god we must be in fellowship with his children right notice what jesus warned matthew 5 21 through 24 you have heard that it was said by them of old time thou shalt not kill And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy thy gift to the altar, and and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Do you think for a moment 
that these men, over the last more than two decades, after having sold their brother into slavery, had tried to worship God in some way? Do you believe that they had tried to offer sacrifice under the patriarchal laws? I'm sure they did. They felt like they were doing what God wanted them to do while all along they had sinned against their brother. Their conscience had become seared. They no longer thought about it. And how much good was that worship doing them as they came before the Father at that altar? It wasn't doing them any good. We have to turn away from sin. We have to turn toward God. And brethren, we have to train our conscience. We have to train it. That's the most important thing we can do to save our conscience is to have it trained. David said this, Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. David committed some terrible acts. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. But he was able to save his conscience by training it. That's how we train our conscience. And because of that, he overcame the sins of this life. He was able to be what God needed him to be. Does that mean that we ought to uphold David and honor him for the terrible things he did in this life? No, we ought to be ashamed of what he did because I know he was. But he trained his conscience so that he could save himself. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, he said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's training one's conscience. God requires a trained conscience. It's not an option. We must train our conscience so it can help guide us in this life. But remember, a conscience is of no use unless it has been trained by God. Man's standards of what is right and what is wrong do not meet God's standards ever. When our standards meet His standards, it's because we have been trained by Him. When we train our conscience, we can prevent it from being seared. But if it becomes hard, it can still be stirred up. Though it's difficult, and it can be saved if God's Word has been hidden in the heart. God's message tells us how to be saved. It tells us when we're wrong. It tells us how to correct that wrong, and it tells us how to remain faithful. And that's why Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine. What do you, how do you live? For reproof. You're not doing it. For correction. How to fix it. And for instruction in righteousness. How to remain faithful. That the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The conscience is fragile. And the conscience is absolutely important because it is part of the eternal man. It is the part that helps guide us. We can't separate the conscience as some kind of a separate entity from ourselves. It's not a, a, a voice in the still night. It's who we are. And we must train it to be who we need to be and who God wants us to be. If you've never obeyed the gospel, you haven't trained your conscience properly. We need to do that. Rightly dividing the word, we come to the understanding that faith comes by hearing the word of God. Romans ten seventeen, not from someone else. That faith is absolutely necessary to please God. Hebrews eleven six. Turning toward God means repenting 
We talked about the godly sorrow that worketh repentance. That, that is the recognition I've done wrong. If my conscience is seared, that's what I've got to do to stir it up. If I've never obeyed the gospel, I make that good confession that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the source of the information by which we train ourselves. I'm baptized in water for the forgiveness of sin, Acts 2.38. Washing our sins away, Acts 22.16. Absolutely necessary for salvation and then living that faithful life. Sometimes we step out of the light and our conscience may become seared. That is so dangerous. Nothing more dangerous than a seared conscience. We can come back to God after we've been stirred up, after we want to have our conscience saved through repentance and confession and prayer. And God will forgive us. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.